Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds on KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochileo. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I'd like to thank you guys for listening. And I'd also like to thank my contributors to the show. Who are executive producer Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger. Senior editor Amanda Steele, author of Ghosts of Me. Binaural production engineer Damien Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great and monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. And if you are interested in contributing to this podcast, just go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find a whole bunch of information there. And now, without further ado, our guest for today, Joanne DiMaggio. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. Um, so I, you're um, like a past life expert and uh it looks like your your most recent book was about thomas edgar casey and uh thomas jefferson right it was about um a little boy who was two days old had a life reading by edgar casey and casey identified him as having been both thomas jefferson and alexander the great in a previous lifetime and uh, this little boy's name is T.J. Davis, and he is now 85 years old. It will be next month. Lives here in Charlottesville, where I live. And um, Casey said that this this little this soul uh, could do for the world what Jefferson did for this country. That was the prophecy that he he gave this little boy when he was two days old. Uh, and of course, that didn't happen. So my book is really about why why that never happened. And why didn't it happen? Well, it's all about free free will and uh, the choices that we make. Uh, Casey had a special interest in this little this little soul. They had been together in multiple other lifetimes. Um, Casey predicted great things for him. He he tutored him the entire time that that they lived together, which was about eight and a half years. Casey died when T.J. was eight and a half years old. Um, and TJ lived on and off in the Casey household, and he tells some incredible stories about some of the things that he saw um, being a member of that household. Um, Casey outlined exactly what his parents were to do to raise him, his education, things like that, and of course his parents didn't do those things. They didn't follow Casey's advice, and so when Casey died, when TJ was so young, you know, he couldn't really do any of the things that Casey had suggested on his own. It was he was really at the mercy of the adults around him. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they, they failed him in every way possible. And so um, he became uh, sort of a recluse, you know, he, um, uh, he didn't, uh, he didn't fulfill any of the uh, wondrous things that Casey said he was capable of doing. So, um, but I also think, you know, he, he was blamed a lot growing up. Uh, and as an adult, people would, uh, you know, look at him and say, you were, you were supposed to do these great things and you never did it. And uh, I was just curious as a writer, as a, I, th- I think of myself as a, as a reporter for the universe. So I like to look at these great stories that are out there and share them. And 
I wondered what was it like for him to be to grow up with that heavy burden of knowing who he had been in a prior life, what he was predicted to be able to do and knew that he didn't do it. You know, how did that impact him? And nobody ever asked that question. No, people would blame him for not doing these things, but they never wanted to find out why. So I decided I was going to find out why. And I spent eight years researching his life. We go to the Edgar Casey Foundation in Virginia Beach. I went into their archives, into the vault, looked through his uh, his files, and interviewed him multiple times, and then pieced together um, what his life was like growing up. Uh, and he he had parents who were alcoholics and gamblers, and um, you know it didn't fare well for him. Uh, so I've outlined what I think are the reasons he never accomplished what he was set what he set out to do. But I also think that it really had nothing to do with Thomas Jefferson and that it had nothing to do with um, any sort of political global initiative. I think it had to do with the Casey material that I, because Casey was grooming him, you know, he taught him about reincarnation, about the creation story, about karma, how to read auras from, from when he was like two years old, that go out on the fishing pier together and Casey would be teaching this little boy all about these things. I think really what Casey meant was that, you know, TJ would grow up to share this information with the world. Um, and because they never talked about Jefferson when he was growing up. Uh, so I really think it had to do more with the Casey work. Um, and TJ's always said to me, he said, you know, Joanne, the all of human humanity's questions are answered in those readings, in those 14,000 readings that Edgar Casey did. If only people knew that that material was out there and that they actually, you know, would go there and, and research it. So that's what the book is about. It's just like a, you know, an understanding of how a soul that had been so lofty in a prior lifetime could have a rather lackluster life the next time around and what role free will had to play in that. Interesting. So what was he, what was he like? I, I know you do t different types of readings yourself. So you met with him to interview him. Um, did you get, do you feel like that Edgar Casey was right about his soul? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. If you were to sit alone with him and talk with him, he's the most fascinating person I've ever met. Uh, you know, his, his humility, his depth of understanding of, of uh, uh, and his charisma, he still has that charisma. I, I hosted him a couple of times at Unity of Charlottesville um, to have conversations because he never talked about this until we met and uh, which was in uh, 1996. And, um, and I, we didn't, um, really get together to do programming until about almost 10 years later. Uh, and then I said, why don't you tell your story? Because he wouldn't talk about it to anybody because he said he learned at an early age to keep his mouth shut because people, if he said something like, you know, I had been Thomas Jefferson, people would look at him like he, they need to cart him off to the mental institution. Right. So he was very, very private about all of this until I said, you know, if you're with people, in the Edgar Casey organization, they're going to be open to all of this. They're not going to think ill of you. And so then he finally started talking about it. So um, uh, he did, I think we did at least a half dozen of those where we had audience and people were hanging on his every word. 
he had as much charisma now as I believe he had then. And uh, they just, they loved him. And, um, and so based on those conversations, the stories he told there, and then private interviews that I had with him, uh, and then following up with all of the letters that Mr. Casey wrote that uh, uh, TJ's aunt, I should say his aunt was Gladys Davis. She was Casey's secretary. Mm -hmm. That's how he got to Mr. Casey. Um, his parents, letters that his parents wrote, anybody that knew him. Um, so I started my research like in 1935 before he was conceived and and just followed him, uh, followed his life uh, after that. So the first part of the book is all historic documentation about the the time, you know, that they were coming out of the Depression, going into World War II, and that had a lot to do with his parents' instability as far as providing a, a, a stable home for him. And then... Um, the second part of the book are are his recollections of growing up in the Casey household. Wow. Um, so what happened with him? Like, what did he end up becoming? He just, he never really found his niche. He, um, he wanted more than anything to work at the ARE. He would have given anything to do that. He even said, I'll, I'll even just cut the grass. I just want to be here. I want to be near the readings. And he was never given that opportunity. Uh, and so he really became like, you know, he, he lived a sort of hippie lifestyle um, and it was a vagabond. And, and uh, he had odd jobs here and there. Um, the closest he came to working with the Casey material was he worked for the Heritage Store in Virginia Beach and they sold the Casey remedies because they're still making them to this day. You know, Casey gave out of those 14,000 readings, 12,000 of those were health readings. Mm -hmm. And that's why Casey's uh, earned the title of father of holistic medicine. And so those recipes that he gave to people back in the 20s and 30s and 40s are still being made today. And so TJ worked at the Heritage Store and that was the and they were selling these, re these uh, remedies. And that's the closest he came. The last job that he had was here in Charlottesville roasting coffee beans for uh, Greenberry's Coffee Company. So, um, you know, there's a real, I mean, he was a, a disc jockey at one point. Uh, he was in retail. Uh, you know, he just did a little bit of everything, um, but he never did what his heart and soul wanted to do, which was to share the Casey legacy with people. How could such a, a, a great soul um, end up on such a windy, zigzaggy path that just sort of just leads to, you know, 80 years and just sort of fizzles out? Well, you know, um, I've been doing past life research and therapy now for 34 years. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you, and I've written like, five or six books about it. And it's not a consecutive, it's it's not a uh, like a, a ladder that keeps going straight up. Even when Mr. Casey gave readings, he would say, well, in this life, this soul gained, in this life, this soul lost. Meaning, you know, you're working on karmic issues from lifetime to lifetime. And so sometimes that'll put you on an upward trajectory uh, in which you'll, you'll accomplish great things, but you also at times you know, uh, you're working, what depends on what you're working on, what, what specific karma you're working on. And, uh, it'll, 
you know, you'll end up having a very different life. You'll ha- you'll uh, be in a, a different country, a different sex, a different uh, a role that you're playing. Uh, and it's just it's just to work on all those karmic issues. So it it's not a straight upward trajectory. There are times when you you know you decide, hey, I'm going to work on this issue, and then from the outside, it looks like your soul has you know uh, slid. Uh, backwards, but on a soul level, it, you, you, that's not it at all. You're just simply working on something else right now. And and in this life, he wasn't intended to be the great politician, the great you know savior of the world. He really was intended to spread the word about Casey's work. Um, that's what this life was supposed to be about, but just didn't work out that way. Although we're hopefully with this book and with the the talks that I'm that I'm convincing him to still give, even though his health is starting to fail, mm-hmm. um, he uh, he will actually accomplish that before he leaves the planet. Okay, so he's still living. Yes, yes, yes. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. He lives uh, actually. He lives on um, on a little mountain of his own. Which, if he goes to the top of his property, when he first bought the property, when he went up there with binoculars, he looked over and. Guess what he saw? He saw Monticello, which is Thomas Jefferson's home. So being here in Charlottesville is very um, symbolic because this is where Jefferson lived. Hmm. So everything here is all about Jefferson. The University of Virginia, which Jefferson founded, is here. Uh, you know, his home is here. Um, so he's constantly reminded of that lifetime um, by, by living here in the shadow of his former great self, you might say. Wow. Does he remember any of his life as Jefferson? You know, he says, uh, I asked him once, I said, do you, um, do you believe you were Thomas Jefferson because you remember being Jefferson or because Edgar Casey said you were Jefferson? And he said, no, it's because Casey said I was Jefferson. And I've, all, I've asked him multiple times to allow me to do a regression and he won't do it. Um, but yet, if you read the book, there are multiple multiple uh, occasions when those memories did come to the surface. You know, he recited part of the Declaration of Independence to Edgar Casey when he was only three years old. Mm-hmm. And he told Edgar, he said, I wrote that, three years old. Um, he had, there was other, I cite other stories in the book in which those memories floated to the surface. And, and uh, but you know what, there are a lot of Oh, souls here, and especially in Charlottesville, there are a lot of people that go around saying that they were Jefferson too. So, you know, I think what's interesting though about TJ is that he's he's never really bragged about that. He's never said, you know, I was Thomas Jefferson, and you should listen to me. Um, so um, that's the problem with famous past lives, and I run into this a lot in my practice, where there are some people who say that they were somebody famous on the flimsiest of evidence. Um, I had one woman come to me and said she was Patrick Henry. And when I asked her why she thought she was Patrick Henry, she said, because he talks, uh, he he's a good talker and so am I. <laughs> well, no, there's a little more to it than that, you know? So um, that's why I tend to, to shy away from that end of it uh, when I'm doing my work, because for me, past life work is about healing. It's not about who you were before, um, except that 
the karmic issues that you um, first encountered in that previous life, you've brought it in with you now to work on. So that's what I do with people. But um, but yeah, he um, he doesn't really brag about it at all. And he really doesn't. There, there, the Jefferson life bothers him because of the slavery issue. The Alexander lifetime bothers him because Alexander killed so many people. And uh, so he's not exactly proud of that life. And so he doesn't talk much about it. So it's really about who he is in the here and now. And we're still working on that. Wow. Do, do you think some of the slavery stuff could be what resulted in this current life? Working on some of that type of karma? Um, it could be. He's living in, in uh, pretty much living in poverty in this lifetime. He doesn't have any money. So he's dealing with um, the money issues from the Jefferson life because Jefferson died bankrupt. Uh, he never handled money well. And then maybe the slavery issue too, to, to live uh, to live the way he's living now. Um, and um, I know when he was younger, uh, he um, his Aunt Gladys and her husband would host uh, meetings at their home of members of the NAACP and uh, TJ said that at one point, uh, when he was a, a teenager, I think, uh, uh, he went to Norfolk and joined the NAACP. He said he thinks he was the first white boy and child or teenager, whatever, in Virginia or in that area to, to have done that. So, um, you know, he's shown no prejudice at all in this life, no bias or anything like that. Um, but it still bothers him bothers him that that Jefferson uh, that Jefferson did own slaves and you know so it's not as if he feels like I mean he's proud of some of the things um, he tells a story about uh, when he went to Monticello in this life uh, every year on the fourth of July they have a naturalization ceremony in which they welcome they swear in you know about 50 uh, new citizens of the United States and so he said, you know, once in a while, I like to see the good that I did. So I, you know, I, he tried to go up there once to see this and uh, there was no place for him to park. And the attendant said, I'm sorry, you'll you have to leave. There's no place for you to park. And he said, what do you mean? He said, I, I'm Thomas Jefferson. This is my house. It's, I think it's the first time that he actually did that. And uh, the, the parking attendant said, I'm sorry, Mr. Jefferson, you still have to leave. There's no place for you to park here. <laughs> so, uh, so he's got other stories like that, that I, that I found were not only are they amusing, but they're also very poignant, you know, when you think mm -hmm. about, about, um, about who he is and what he's been going through. Wow. Um, if you were to do a past life regression on him, that would be so fascinating because there's quite a bit of mystery, I think, even now, still surrounding the Constitution and Declaration of Independence, like oh, that that whole era. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know, like like because when I, when I look at the history of the United States, to me, it doesn't all make sense. <laughs> You know, I think there's more behind it than, than what we've been taught in school. Absolutely. And it would be so cool to find some of that out from him. Yeah. Well, you know, I suggested that to him. I said to him once, I said, you know what we could do um, to fulfill Mr. Casey's prophecy about you? If I would regress you, we could have 
your current personality take go in the background and allow the Jefferson aspect to come forward. And then I could talk directly to the Jefferson aspect. And then I could have a list of questions to ask and you can answer them and then we can put them out there to the public. I said, in that way, you may be able to, to do what Casey said you could do, which is to do more for the world than you did for this country. Um, he liked the idea, but it never went anywhere. So mm -hmm. um, I don't know why he won't do a regression. Uh, I don't know if there's something there that he's fearful of. I mean, he said if he were going to do it with anybody, he would do it with me. But um, but it, I don't think it's ever going to happen, to be honest with you. You don't think he would even do it for money? No. I doubt it. Well, me, I don't know. That's a good question. I, mean, I don't know. You know, raise 10 grand for him to help him out. Oh, yeah. He would, I think that he might consider it then. Yeah. There it is. It was set up a GoFundMe for him. Mm. Raise 10 grand and solve the mystery. Yeah. Yeah. That's a possibility. Yeah. Good idea, Gary. <laughs> I'm always thinking. <laughs> <laughs> So, so for you, what got you interested in past life regression? Well, um, you know, when I, I grew up Catholic, I uh, went to Catholic school for 12 years. And um, when I was a teenager, I started questioning the, the logic behind Catholicism. The whole idea of sin didn't make any sense to me. You could do whatever you wanted, go to confession, then it gets wiped clean. That's it. I mean, that didn't sound right. Um, and so I started to look at other philosophies and I started reading uh, metaphysical books when I was a teenager. I read books about Edgar Cayce, books that were written by Ruth Montgomery and Jeff Stern and all of those who were big back in the 60s, 70s. Um, and then uh, uh, I had a lot of bleed through in my own life that pointed me in the direction of having had an 18th century American pass a lifetime. But I didn't know it at the time. I didn't understand what was, what was kind of going on. Uh, I went to college. I majored in early uh, 18th century American history. That was my specialty area. I had a professor tell me, he said, you know, you've got the most uncanny feel for the 18th century of any student I've ever had. And I thought, you know, I do, but I didn't know why. So none of it made any sense to me. Um, so then after college, uh, I ended up taking a trip along the Eastern seaboard to all the places that I had this uncanny feel for. And when I came to Virginia, it really was strong. I mean, I was having uh, heart palpitations and I was having difficulty breathing and my legs felt like lead weights when I was trying to walk at these different historic locations. So a lot of physical stuff, uh, karma was manifesting. Still didn't figure it out, still didn't put two and two together. Um, came home, got married, had a family, kind of went to sleep until 1987. And that's when Shirley MacLaine's book, Out on a Limb, became a miniseries mm -hmm. on ABC. They ran it for two nights in January of 87. Well, that was the big wake-up call, I think, for many, many sleeping metaphysicians, myself included. And she talked about her past life quite quite a bit in that miniseries. 
And I thought, wow, you know, I really, then I remembered all, all the things that I had experienced growing up and as a teenager and young adult. And um, that same year, I thought I need to be around like-minded people. I want to be around people that can, that I can learn from, or that I can open up about this and not feel like I'm weird. So uh, I looked around and I found Edgar Casey's ARE, Association for Research and Enlightenment. And I joined and uh, became actively involved in that. And then uh, simultaneously, I started my own past life research organization in Chicago. I was living in Chicago at the time. And uh, so when ARE would bring in their speakers from all over the country, many of them were past life therapists, were past life uh, researchers. And I became friends with them. And one of them in particular convinced me that I should actually be doing that work. You see, I saw myself more as the writer. I wanted to, to research what everybody was doing and then write about it. I didn't actually want to do the work myself. But then this one particular speaker from ARE, he said to me, you know, Joanne, you know more about past life work than like 95% of the therapists are out there. Why aren't you doing it? And uh, it took me a few years, but I finally agreed. And then I got my hypnotherapy certification. And um, later I went to uh, Atlantic University, which... Uh, which is part of ARE. Uh, I got my master's degree in transpersonal studies and my spiritual mentor certification. So around the early 90s, I started doing, um, I didn't get, get the degrees until 2010, but I had already started in the 1990s um, with my hypnotherapy certification. And I started doing that, that work. And then I realized that this was perfect for me to do my research projects because I had willing volunteers who among my clients, you know, I'd say, Hey, I'm doing this research on um, physical karma. Do you have a chronic condition? I want to see if we could trace it to a past life. And I had never had a problem <laughs> getting volunteers. And so uh, uh, based on, on the research projects that I did, my books evolved out of that. And so I've been doing that ever since. Wow. Um, what are some of the benefits of remembering a past life? Well, we are the sum total of all of our past lives. So, um, people who come to me usually are asking me, um, they say, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know why this pattern keeps repeating. Uh, with relationships or with money or, um, you know, I, I feel like I, I'm supposed to be a healer, but I, I just can't do it. There's something stopping me. I don't understand what that is. Uh, so going to a past life that's impacting them right now, it goes to the source of the problem. I was just talking to somebody about this this morning. Um, you know, a lot of the self-help groups that are out there, a lot of the classes that they're teaching always wants you to identify something that happened in your childhood, right? That is impacting you today. Mm -hmm. Whenever I've done that kind of work, I, I get stymied because I realize that there's no logical reason for this to have happened to me as a child. And then I realize, well, it goes back further than that. It goes back to another lifetime. Many of the people in my research projects, when I ask them to go back to the life that's impacting them now, they go back a thousand years. It isn't that it, it happened just the lifetime immediately prior to this one. 
by going back to the source and seeing where did this all begin? What was it something I did to somebody? Was it something that somebody did to me? Did I experience some sort of a trauma? I mean, it also could be a past life in which you first experienced um, a talent, skill, or ability. It doesn't have to always be something negative or how you would think of as, as traumatic. Um, many times, and I found this especially in my research project on chronic illness, I had people coming to me with all sorts of uh, chronic issues and we trace them to a previous life. And in tracing them there and finding the source of it, uh, it often did a, a spontaneous healing. Just knowing where it came from, knowing its source is was healing in, in so many ways. And so that's what I do in my work now. We go back to the initial uh, event uh, that's impacting them now. And by just revealing it, it often is healed. It's not like traditional hypnotherapy or not hypnotherapy, traditional psychotherapy in which you have, you, you're dealing with an issue and you're going back week after week after week to work on it. With past life regression, you go back. Usually I don't get repeat customers because they, they see what they need to see. They heal what they need to heal in that one session. And uh, it's very, very, very powerful and transformative. And it's also very humbling for me to be a part of that with the people who entrust their journey with me. Hmm. Why is our memory wiped of past lives to begin with? Why is our memory wiped out, did you say? Yeah, like why don't we, well, it's like, like before you reincarnate, it's like our, our past life memory is wiped out. We're wiped clean. Because you wouldn't be able to, handle that much input and you your purpose in being here is is to work on the here and now mm -hmm. and we're but you're not it's not totally wiped out you're given memory triggers before you even come into this life in your between life uh when, when you're in the afterlife and you're planning this session uh this life rather uh, you're given memory triggers that when you come into the body in this life, those triggers are going to come up and they're going to remind you of the past life. Like for me, because I had an 18th century uh, American life, my memory triggers included things like Baroque music, um, the costuming, the architecture, uh, anything I, I would write with a feather pen or a quill pen with ink by candlelight. I was a very strange child. Always wanted to wear, you know, a long gown with my with my uh, hair and ringlets for Halloween. Um, so, and when I came to Virginia, obviously, in the heart of all of this wonderful history of our country, it just got triggered left and right. Now, some people will get triggered by a certain piece of music or art or a, a scent. You know, they'll smell lavender and all of a sudden it'll trigger uh, a memory for them. Or they may go to a certain location. Uh, and and uh, some people go to the same place for vacation year after year after year and they don't even know why. But it could be that they, you know, they had a connection. Some people are, are triggered by certain cultures. Uh, they may resonate to a Native American culture or an Asian culture or something like that. The furniture, 
of a certain uh, time period or style. Uh, foods are other are other triggers. Um, so there's a lot that's going on in our present life that we don't even think about. Uh, we don't even realize that, you know, I have this feeling, this resonance for something, and it makes absolutely no sense why I would feel that way in this lifetime, but that's what it is. It's a bleed through from the previous lifetime. Hmm. Um, so, so when we are reincarnated, um, and we're supposed to be, you know, here working on certain things, um, like, like, you, you, what is the point anyway? Like, 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 why? <laughs> you know, think of the earth as a school, all right? And before we were human, we we're all in spirit. Mm-hmm. By the way, all souls were created at the same time. There's no such thing as an old soul. Every time I hear that, I, I, I always feel like that there's just not an understanding of the, of, of what that means. Um, I think people call you, say you're an old soul because you've just opted to come to the earth more often than, than the next soul and you've accumulated more knowledge about what it's like. So we're all spiritual beings inhabiting a physical body. We're here to take lessons. We're here, we, we've signed up for a curriculum. We've worked with our, our guides, our angels, or, you know, the El Council of Elders is what, what I talk about in my book, I Did It to Myself Again, which is about the afterlife planning session. Um, and we've decided that uh, I want to I know what it's like to be greedy. I want to know what it's like to be made fun of, or I want to, the things that, you know, I, I want to know what, what grief is, or I want to know what it just, uh, just joyous living would be about. I want to know what it feels like to be loved. I want to know what it feels like to be shunned or abandoned. You can't learn any of that when you're in spirit. So when we first decided to be in, incarnate in a body, um, we decided that we were going to experience everything there is to experience in a human body and make our way back to, to spirit, back to back home again to spirit. Uh, so we can only learn these lessons on the earth plane. We can't learn them anyplace else. And so we decided that that's what we were going to do. And so now, you know, we come back lifetime after lifetime after lifetime working on certain issues with the whole idea of eventually going back and being a companion of, of the creative forces of God, of our source. So, um, so that's really what it's all about. I mean, I don't think that we're imperfect. I think that all souls are perfect because we come from a perfect creator. How could a perfect creator create anything less than perfection? Um, so, but we're just, on this little vacation here, we're on this little journey to find out what what this is all about. And uh, uh, and so there are souls that don't have to reincarnate again. They they finish their journey and then they just stay in spirit. Um, but there's others like me who have to come back a lot because <laughs> I'm not done with the with what I'm learning. Mm-hmm. So, it doesn't make sense on a uh, when you're in a physical body and you're thinking about it, like why in the world would I ever agree to that. 
Yeah, like, like why would I want to feel things yeah. like grief or loss or poverty? It's a I, I, I would definitely opt out on those type of things. <laughs> yeah, but when you're in spirit, it's a whole different perspective than when you're in a physical body. It's a learning. It's a learning experience. Everything's a lesson. Mm-hmm. Um, to have a, a fuller understanding of of human life. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, I, I I could see myself choosing to come back for all the fun stuff. Yeah, but you wouldn't learn anything then. Yeah, I don't it's know. Only, you only learn something when you have a challenge in front of you that that um, it requires you to to dig deep and to make choices and. Uh, and also how you respond to, to difficulties that come up in life. And that's that's the power of grace, the law of grace. Um, you can have two people having almost the same identical challenge, but one one reacts to it differently than the other. So, um, oh, and also the way you react uh, to the, thing, the challenges that come before you, the kind of life that you live, you serve as a role model. Other people are watching you. So it could be that it has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with your karmic path. Mm-hmm. It has to do with the, the the people around you and how they're responding to you and what you're going through and how you're reacting to it. Wow. Um, oh, my mind just went blank for a second. <laughs> uh, me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> what, like... <clears throat> I don't know. I, 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 the past life. Like I understand, like coming here to to learn lessons and, and stuff. Um, you know, and and the, and the reasoning behind it makes sense to me. I guess. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I. I don't. I don't remember signing up for this life. So. You did. That's what the life between life session is all about. You, uh, and I also do. I also offer that for people to look at their pre-life. That's why I, I named my book. I did it to myself again mm-hmm. because I noticed in my practice that I had a lot of folks come to me and they blamed their current life issues on mostly on their parents. Parents really take a, a beating in this sort of work. <laughs> you know, it's all my parents' fault or, you know, or it's my husband's fault or wife's fault or my children's fault or anybody else that they could lay the blame on. What they don't realize is that they actually set it up this way. They set it up deliberately so they could learn these lessons. Um, so, and then you, you've got members of your soul family who are with you. You're not alone in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, members of your soul family have been with you for lifetime after lifetime after lifetime. We travel together as a pod, a soul pod. And these people, these souls have been with you from day one. So they know you on a really intimate level. And they decide if they're going to come in with you or not to help you work on different aspects of uh, of your karmic journey. Hmm. So your mother in this life could have been your brother in a previous life because we right. change genders and we change roles, but we're still the same soul. And you could recognize, you could feel out the essence, you know, you have people in your life, you go, boy, they, they feel awfully familiar. I don't know where I know them from, but they feel so familiar to me. Mm-hmm. Well, that's because they've been with you before. So, um, so it's, it's comforting to know that even when, 
even when the lessons that they teach you are rather harsh and harmful and hurtful, I've had that happen to me many times. If you step back and you realize, well, they're actually helping me work on the issue that I decided to work on in this, in this life. You decide, you know, if you've abandoned somebody in a previous life and caused them harm because of that, you come into this life and you say, I'm going to work on that abandonment issue, which would mean to balance it out, you're going to be abandoned in this life. And so these souls come in with you and they go, you know, I think I'm going to help you with that. You know, at some point in life, I'm going to abandon you. Well, that sounds really harsh and really, really mean and, and spirited and everything. But in the end, you know, it has a purpose. You, you then felt what it was like to be left mm -hmm. and that balances out the karma from the from you having done that to somebody else because now somebody's done that to you so it's the whole idea karma is you know cause and effect reap what you sow uh it's a really just uh form of um i don't know what you'd call it um it, it just it just makes a lot of sense to me that it would be a cause and effect sort of thing, which means you can't get away with anything. You know, everything you've ever done, said, thought, you know, is in the Akashic records. And that's like your the library in the sky in which your entire life's journey, your entire soul's journey is recorded. So, you know, eventually you're going to have to balance all of that out in some way, shape or form in order to be able to move on. So the, it's like taking a class in, in, in school. If you pass the class, you don't ever have to take it again. If you don't pass the class, you have to take it again. So, uh, so we so, can fail at it. Well, I wouldn't call it fail, but uh, you don't quite resolve it. Yeah, you have to do it again. Um, there are people, people ask me often, how, how many years are there between lifetimes? And it varies from 50 to 200 years, this is what I found. However, if you've committed suicide, if you've been prematurely, uh, if you've left prematurely, meaning you've been killed in some way, whether in a, in a war or a homicide situation, uh, those souls tend to come back immediately because it's like dropping out of school, you didn't finish. And so you come back again immediately and you you work on those the same issues that you were working on before so um but but uh most souls take a little bit of a of a rest in between lifetimes and and uh they don't come back right away uh and also we don't necessarily come back in the same biological family i always tell everybody that's so into all this dna testing you know the ancestry.com stuff mm -hmm. You have to do a lot more than swab your cheek to know what your soul's journey is like because we don't come back in the same biological family we because you wouldn't learn anything if you did we switch around so you'll be born in a different country you'll be born you know um a different socioeconomic situation uh a different you'll be brought up in a different uh, religion uh you know uh maybe your country's political scene will be contrary to what you were used to. Um, there's all kinds of considerations, but it's all part of the learning. I mean, you're taking a whole different course now. And so, um, so it's really quite fascinating uh, the way it, it works out and, and the way it's divinely orchestrated. 
Could my soul just say no to reincarnating? Like, does my soul have free will? Like, during like, oh, like this process, like, can I just say, you know what? No, nah, I'm not. I'm not, I'm not going to reincarnate anymore. I'm just going to stay in spirit form for eternity. I am just done with Earth. Um, I I assume you can. I haven't run into anybody that said that. Because you know what we say when we're in spirit, when we are in a body, the things that we project and that we say about how we're going to feel when we're in spirit are usually not right at all. <laughs> and then when we're in spirit, it's like, so we're in a body, we're like, I can't wait to go back home. I want to go back to being in spirit again. When we're in spirit, we're like, oh, I can't wait to get back to earth. I want experiences. You may change your mind from the time that you're in a body to the time that you're back in spirit. Um, usually the ones who, who do not reincarnate have nothing left to experience on the earth. But if you have something left that you haven't experienced, it's like you haven't completed the course yet. And so you end up coming back. I asked that question uh, in my uh, pre-life planning session with people. I said, how strong is your desire to return to earth? You know, is it strong? Is it moderate? Is it, you know, resistant? And um, most of them, occasionally I'll have somebody say, it's very resistant. I really don't want to go back, but they come back anyway. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, uh, I would, I, I'm not sure what, I think when you're working with your spirit guides on the other side, I think that's where that all gets decided. Mm -hmm. But apparently I've never said no, because I'm still <laughs> here. <laughs> wow. <clears throat> Yeah, I, I don't know if I would want to come back. I, th I, I think I would call it. <laughs> See what's going on on the earth. I mean, people are saying, you know, why would I want to be alive during COVID? You know, mm -hmm. uh, well, that's a good question, but you chose it. So um, no doubt it was, you know, how you interacted with other people during this, how you how did you manage this? How did you get through this? What what were your thoughts? What were your actions, your deeds? Um, and uh, often the answers lie in, in just observing your, your behavior. Mm -hmm. I just think I got tricked into it. I think somebody just <laughs> waved the sex, drugs, and rock and roll in front of me and, and didn't show me the rest of it. Yeah, I, I like that I was born at a time when I could enjoy... Uh, the 60s. Um, I, I always tell my kids, I said, you have no idea what life was like uh, then. Um, and, you know, the music and uh, so many milestones that, that I've, that I've experienced uh, that I wouldn't uh, trade. I mean, I think about earlier lifetimes and, and you think about the fact that they're gosh, their, their hygiene was so different than ours, their, their lack of medical, knowledge uh you know they didn't have air conditioning we're so spoiled right now in this time period you know and i don't know what the future brings if you you know when you when you pass over and you're in spirit you kind of look down and go well hmm, you know this might be a really good time to get down in there and and let's just kind of go down there and see um i know a lot of uh a, a lot of what i've read and a lot of uh what i'm hearing from people is um this uh, comparison to the Atlantean period and how I know Dick Sutphin and I used to really be a follower of his, he's passed away not too long ago. 
Um, I remember one of his books, he said that like 98% of Americans are former Atlanteans. And even Edgar Cayce talked about that, about the sheer numbers of former Atlanteans that are living now in the United States and how close we are scientifically to where we were then when that continent disappeared. Mm -hmm. um, and how important it is if everybody remembered their past lives, if you remembered living in Atlantis and you remembered what happened and you remembered the part that you played, you'd be ideal for making sure that that doesn't happen again, you know, for steering things in a new direction. So understanding your past and understanding the role that you played helps you in this life to sort of guide us, you know, out of any kind of a catastrophic situation that we might be in. So um, uh, I haven't had too many clients who were former Atlanteans. I've had a few. Um, the ones that I've worked with, um, they all seem to have had a role in the continent's destruction in some way. So they, you know, they feel like um, really responsible and they want to try to thwart that from happening yet again. So, um, so who knows, but, um, but that's like a group incarnation, you know, mm -hmm. of, of a group of people that have that in common. Interesting. You know, I, I have a whole theory on Atlantis, you know, I, I, I'm not entirely convinced. There's two things. One, I don't think it was completely wiped out. I think it was a part of North America. And, and and part of it, like the maybe the main part of it, got destroyed somehow. Mm -hmm. I also think that people survived, and I oh, think yeah. some 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 were still stayed here and just went further into North America. Others went down to South America, and yeah. some somehow ended up in Egypt. Yeah, um, in my book about Edgar Casey and T.J. Davis. Edgar Casey said that TJ had been uh, um, a man called Sulanon in Atlantis. He was working with the sons of Belial. Those were the bad guys. And he was, he was working on whatever he was working on was leading toward this destruction. And then he met the soul that was Gladys, who was his aunt in, in this life. And she was with the daughters of the law of one, which were the good guys. And, he fell in love with her. He changed. He became, you know, he switched sides, so to speak. And he became like, you know, on the most wanted list of the sons of Belial wanted to get him. But anyway, at the point of where he knew what was happening, he led uh, groups of people. And Casey says this in his reading. He actually talks about that he led people out of Atlantis to, uh, to Egypt, to the, the Incas, the Mayans, um, even the mound builders in Ohio. So mm -hmm. he lists he lists all the places that that he took people. I just did a regression on somebody um, not too long ago who said basically the same thing that that uh, he led a group of people out of Atlantis, and so they repopulated different parts of the world. Um, and so those you know, that, um, that work is still ongoing with those, those people. Um, right. and those, you know, we don't have the Mayans or the Incas anymore, or, um, I forgot all the list of, the, I think he, I think TJ said he was, he was in Peru, took people to Peru too, or something like that. 
but um but yeah th those are all remnants of uh, of that and then you've got lemuria that was on the west coast of the united states off off that california mm -hmm. uh, and they said mount shasta is supposed to be a uh, part of that uh continent so you know there's there's a lot that's been written about it because it existed for such a long 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 time um thousands of years um and so it's interesting for me especially when i get a client that'll come to me who'll go back to that i don't get too many which surprises me and every and a lot of people who come to see me they go i said do you have any preconceived notion of where you what lifetime you want to see and they go i want to go to atlantis they never go to Atlantis. So, because it's up to the soul which, which lifetime that they're going to see and mm -hmm. very seldom is Atlantis. But that's that's always been fascinating to me. I, I lean more toward Lemuria uh, than than to Atlantis, but um, personally, but um, but a lot of Lemurians came to Atlantis. So, um, so it's that part of our human history is is really fascinating. And it's just too bad that we don't have more evidence of uh, that we can kind of hold on to i think there is archaeological evidence you know um you know when, when i looked at plato and this you know like the, the plato's description of atlantis right. and then there's a place called the eye of africa which fits it perfectly uh there's a place here in north america called um poverty point it's in north louisiana Looks exactly again the same exact structure, same even like the number of walls and channels are all the same. Mm -hmm. it, it it can't be coincidence. I I I think the Atlanteans survived and they created some of these structures to leave a memory. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, 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 in hopes to activate somebody else's memory later on. Right, right. All the work that they did with crystals. Mm -hmm. well, we're doing that today so yeah and I also even think that there might be something to there being a library underneath the Sphinx too oh yeah I mean whether it's I thought it's a written library but I guess it could be contained within crystals that would make sense yeah 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 TJ tells a story about when he was uh, a child that uh, group came to ARE and knowing that Casey had said he had been uh, Alexander, that um, they wanted to hypnotize him because they wanted to see if he will tell them where Alexander is buried because they assume that there's treasure there. Right. You know, uh, and uh, same thing with his Jefferson life. He said there was a group that came and they uh, <laughs> They threw an American flag over him and and threw him in a closet and started chanting over him. So it's like, you know, they want to get information about the past. I don't think that's the right way to do it, but they they tried nonetheless. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's crazy. Um, so, so one of the other things that, that I noticed that you in your books is um, writing. Oh, the soul writing. Yeah. What is that? Um, the soul writing. Um, soul writing is a written form of meditation. So if you think of prayer as you talking to God and meditation as God talking to you, soul writing is you taking notes. 
Soul writing is based on what Edgar Cayce called inspirational writing. And actually, this was my thesis for my master's degree. Um, I did not know. I was doing it from the time I was a child and didn't realize what I was doing. So it's it's writing in an altered state of consciousness. So it's you going into this meditative state uh, and then opening yourself up and asking for guidance through the written word. So then the guidance comes from above through you, through your soul, out your hand and onto the paper. It is not uh, to be confused with automatic writing. It is not that at all. There's a difference between the two. But Casey talked about inspirational writing. He had a lot of people that would come to him. A lot of writers came to Casey and would ask him, how do I improve my my writing? And he would he went on. There's so like I said, there's quite a few um those anybody that's an ARE member, by the way, if you go on edgarcasey.org, you can go into the readings. And if you don't know the reading number, you can just type in like uh, inspirational writing and then all those readings that he gave on that topic will, will come up. Same with any topic that, that he does. Um, but anyway, um, I, I started doing it. Like I said, when I was a child, I, um, uh, and, and like I said, I didn't know what it was, but the first time I did it, I was about eight or nine years old and um, my parents were born in the United States, but they spoke fluent Italian to my grandparents and it drove me crazy, drove my brother and I crazy because <laughs> whenever they didn't want us to know what, what they were saying, they start talking Italian. <laughs> and I thought, okay, I'm going to show you guys what it feels like to not know what's going on. So I went into the only private room in the house, which was the bathroom, and I sat under the sink. And now being a good Catholic girl, I thought, okay, I'm going to pray. Dear Jesus, can you send me a secret code, you know, that I can use? Well, I sat there and I fully expected I was going to get something, you know, and here I did. I got these, these figures. So I turned them into an alphabet and I started leaving notes around the house with my alphabet. Well, my parents didn't care. And I thought, well, this didn't work. You know, thanks a lot. <laughs> so um, fast forward, maybe 25 years later, and I'm taking a calligraphy class. And the teacher is showing us the history of handwriting. And lo and behold, she pulls down this chart. And there is my secret code. And I'm like, whoa, I remembered it so clearly. I thought, how did she know my secret code? This was just between me and whoever was giving it to me. Turns out it was the Phoenician alphabet. I had somehow connected. Maybe it was just out in consciousness somewhere and I just pulled it in. Or maybe I knew it. Maybe I lived during that time and I was remembering it. But that's the first time that it, that it happened. Later on when I was in school, when I was in college, I was not the best student. I loved the history, but I loved to listen to it. I didn't really want to do all the reading and all that. So all of our all of our tests were essays, right? So I would sit there and I go, oh, I can't answer this question. What am I going to do? And I thought, ah, and I would revert to my little nine-year-old self and I'd mm -hmm. say, oh, God, can you please help me with this? Send me the information. And I swear the pen would just fly off the paper. And I would write the essay, turn it in, get an A. And that's when that professor said to me that I had this uncanny feel. Well, I didn't realize I was actually sort of channeling my own my own memory of that time period. It wasn't, that's the only explanation. Mm -hmm. 
So um, many years later, I was uh, listening to a subliminal hypno hypnosis tape that Dick Sutphin had produced. It's called Start Writing Now. And this was meant to help writers if they had writer's block. And um, I started to listen to the tape and he said, you know, imagine yourself uh, like you were in a movie and you're going to be, you're going to write and you have something to say and it's important and blah, 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 blah. Well, then when he said, okay, you know, go ahead and do it. I would see myself walking down these stairs, sitting at a desk, pulling out a piece of parchment paper and then writing. And as I was writing in the here and now, I was, what I was writing sounded like a, um, diary entry it really sounded like one of these sophomoric romance novels you know i thought Ugh, i don't write like this but it was always dated 1792 1803 you know i'm like what is this well it was me um unbeknownst to me uh using the writing allowing my past life aspect to come forward and then writing a, like a diary journal to me um, Dick, uh, Frank DeMarco, who's a very prolific writer, uh, he wrote a book called Chasing Smallwood, in which he did basically the same thing. He, he allowed his conscious self to take a back seat, and then one of his past life aspects, which in this case was a Confederate soldier named um, Joseph Smallwood, to come forward and, and to write uh, through him. So I actually realized that you could uh, you could get past life information through this writing, and I wrote a whole, I did a whole research project on it, and that became my second book, Your Soul Remembers. Um, so, um, but there's I also there's also many other ways to use soul writing. You can use it for developing psychic abilities. You could use it for um, getting into um, esoteric discussions about some profound topics. I asked once in my writing, I said, what's the difference between universal laws and the Ten Commandments? And I got a two-week course on the difference between them and went through each of the Ten Commandments and explained about why they were written the way they were at that time. But I'll never forget that the um, right in the beginning, my source writing through me was said, there is no such, there is no um, universal law that begins thou shalt not. Now, I wouldn't have never thought of that on my own, you know, I mean, and I thought, whoa, who's doing this writing? <laughs> so I began to really research it deeply for my master's degree, spent about a year reading, um, you know, uh, psychology journals in which the writing was used but most of it was like you know people were using automatic writing and if you if you look up automatic writing today like on amazon if you were to type that in you would get all books about the occult if you type in inspirational writing which is the term casey used you'll get all christian genre books so neither one of them was really describing what this tool was of how you could use it then as I was doing my research, I found out that the process of, of doing the writing is the same process that famous writers used and that famous composers used. And I was uh, fascinated by the way they were trying to, to tell people where this inspiration would come from, you know. And so I listed all of the people that, that I had researched and what they said about it, composers and writers. And I started teaching it. 
And um, now I use it. I offer it as an as a um, supplement. When I do a regression with somebody, I'll say, do you want to go deeper? Because we can tack on the soul writing. So what happens is we'll do the regression when the regression is over. Uh, if they want to do the soul writing, I, I bring them almost all the way back to full consciousness, but not quite. They put a pen in their hand, you have a pad of paper, and I say, okay, now I ask spirit to reveal some information to you that you didn't get in the regression. So this could be the backstory, or it could offer guidance. And while they're writing, I'm also writing. I'm asking my source, can you give me any information on their behalf? And so then I'm doing the writing, and then I'm sharing that with them. And boy, do we get a lot of aha moments when that happens. It's it's You could use it so many different ways. I've got them all out listed in my book, Soul Writing. Um, and it's just the most uh, healing tool. As a matter of fact, I had a woman who's an assistant professor at the School of Social Work at a university in Richmond, Virginia. Um, she had um, had breast cancer. And she said somebody gave her my book on soul writing. And she read it and she started to do the writing and said that it was enormously important part of her healing so much so that she wants us to work together so that we could bring a version of soul writing a more mainstream version of it uh, into the university to teach those upcoming social workers how they can use it with with their clients and i was at the university of virginia medical center last year and as i'm walking down the hall i saw that somebody that they were offering uh writing uh journaling of some sort uh, as part of the healing process. So it has enormous potential, enormous, um, you can use it for almost anything. So it has a much more mainstream feel to mm -hmm. it than some of the other metaphysical work that I'm doing. Interesting. Um, you, yourself personally, like how many past lives, how, what, what's the, how many past lives do you personally remember? And like, what would be the first one? First one is that 18th century that's one. Really? So that's pretty uh, recent. Yeah, but well, that one was 1773 to 1835, I think. Um, I've had a Native American past life that I remember. Uh, I had one in Jamestown, which would have been before this 18th century one. I had one um, in France that I remember. Um, I had one that was like prehistoric time in cave land. I had Atlantis, Egypt. Um, I don't remember them all with vivid detail mm -hmm. because I'm not working on all those right now. Um, I was once told that I probably have had maybe 150 lives. Um, now when you think about from the beginning of time, you know, I don't know if you start doing the math, uh, if that's a lot or not. Uh, I don't obviously don't remember all of those because right. um, like I said, when you come into life, you only really re working on one in particular. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So the 18th century one is the one I'm working on right now. Have you ever come across people who had past lives on different planets? They have had. Yes, I have, but very few. I had, um, I think two in all the years that I've done this work. Um, one in particular said that she came here from another planet and she 
was having a hard time adjusting here. Um, missed her home, uh, didn't exist anymore. Um, so it wasn't like it was a past life for her, I don't think. I don't know. I don't remember. This was, this was many, many years ago. Uh, I've had others, people who've said they remember being on another planet, but, you know, even Edgar Casey writes about that, that we do, we can go to other planets between earthly sojourns. Um, sometimes it's just to rest. Sometimes it's to learn something uh, elsewhere, but not very often. No, I don't. Uh, Edgar Casey said, whatever is begun on the earth has to be completed on the earth. Mm -hmm. Most the vast majority of people that I'm working with have had past lives right here on the earth. Could I be reincarnated as a cat? No. Why not? I want to be a cat. Because there's that's I uh, know that's <laughs> like a transmutation sort of thing. No, no. Um, animals are in a soul group of their own. Uh, they do reincarnate, but they don't jump ship from one species to the other so i know there are people who believe that i mean i've had clients who've come to me and told me they were a horse in a previous life and they remember being a horse um but i you know uh from from all the studying that i have done uh no we don't jump species human human souls go into human bodies hmm. Do you want to be a cat? Oh, I would love to be a cat. Just lay around, <laughs> eat, sleep, harass I, people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know what? Um, I've heard so many stories of people whose dogs and cats have passed and they've come back. You know, they live relatively short lives compared to humans. And so it's conceivable that they would come back again. Mm -hmm. Um there are certainly there are certainly books out there about this, but that's not my area of expertise. I just know that that's something that um, just from the Casey readings alone, um, that 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 isn't something that happens. Uh, there are certain things about you know reincarnation philosophies that I don't resonate to, and uh, I, I try not you know not to be judgmental or to say my way is the only way or I know everything because I certainly don't, and I learn from everybody. Uh, but that isn't one of the things that I, I feel is right. And I also, this whole theory about um, souls can break, can split into multiple parts and go into multiple bodies, which is the explanation that these other Thomas Jeffersons <laughs> here in Charlottesville wow. give me about why they're Thomas Jefferson too. It's like, well, you know, his, his soul split and this aspect of his soul went into this body and this aspect of his soul went into this body. My question is who, which, which aspect is dealing with the karma from the previous lifetime? Mm -hmm. You know, is that fair? Is it fair that one aspect gets all the glory and the other one has to deal with uh, the slavery issue? So um, that, I know there's a lot of people who, who talk about parallel lives and all that. I think, you know, in my work, if I started to focus in on that, I would lose almost all my clients because people come into this work a little bit skeptical to begin with, right? And if you start hitting them up with all of this quantum theory stuff about how this really, how this works, you're going to lose them. And the purpose of the work that I do, I think of it as sacred work. 
and I don't do it for entertainment purposes. If somebody comes to me and says, oh, I think I, you know, I just want to see what this is all about. You know, I, I prefer not to work with them because I want, I want to help heal people and uh, I want to help them to understand who they are and why they're here. So if you start hitting them up with a lot of these uh, theories that may or may not be true, I'm not negating them. I'm just saying that, that, that I don't adhere to them. Um, I think you'll lose a lot of people. And if you lose a lot of people, then what's the sense of it? What's the purpose of, of doing the work in the first place? Yeah. So, yeah, that's just me mm -hmm. and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't. So my point, um, souls, like, like can, can we run out of souls? Where do they come from? You know, that question about population and all of that comes up quite a bit. You know, how many souls originally were there? There's a lot of souls that are waiting to get into bodies. There are a lot of souls that are going off to the other planets, like we talked about. Uh, so they're not on the Earth at, at, at this time. There are some souls who just, they're kind of hanging out. They're not even coming in right now. So no, I don't think we're going to run out of souls. Hmm. There's plenty where they came from. It, does God create these souls? In the beginning, yeah. In the beginning. Why? To be companions with him or her. So God, that's, God that's was... Our purpose. our purpose is to be a companion with, with the creative forces. So God was lonely. I don't know about lonely, but... Um, I mean, I don't, there's not too much written about that because where do you go for your sourcing material? <laughs> <laughs> Hello, God, are you lonely up there? Um, yeah. Did, where did Casey adopt his karma idea? Did he, did he get it from the Eastern religions like Buddhism and Taoism? No, not at all. Because I know he was Christian. He, experience. he, he was a very devout Christian. He read the Bible for every year of his life. He taught Sunday school. When he first started doing these readings, he was exclusively doing health readings. And he knew that those readings were helping people, helping to cure and heal people. All of a sudden, somebody asked him a question, uh, and he started to get more esoteric information. And when he started to get past life information, when he said, well, this all started when you were so-and-so and did such and such a thing, it's, you know, he didn't know what he was saying when he was actually saying it because uh, he was in a trance and he mm -hmm. would, but he was going directly up to the Akashic records and, and to source and getting information and bringing it down. You had to ask him a question, by the way. He didn't just pontificate on some subject. He waited for the question and then he got the answer, which was why it was so important for people to ask appropriate questions. And sometimes when I'm looking at the readings and I'm seeing some of the ridiculous questions people were asking, and I thought you people were alive when he was alive and you had this incredible opportunity and you're asking him what corner to put your refreshment stand on. I'm sorry, you know, that's being judgmental on my part, I know. But uh, there's been nobody like him since he's left us.
And it's very sad because we don't have that access to that information anymore. We have to rely on what we've already been given. So, um, so he would just go into a trance and he would, he would uh, when he first started getting the information about reincarnation, when he found out that that's what he was saying, it freaked him out. Mm-hmm. He actually stopped doing readings because this was so against everything that he believed in. And he thought, oh, no, I'm not, you know, it took him a few weeks to sort of research it a little bit more, get used to the idea. Source said, this is fine. Don't worry about it. You know, just continue to do it. And then he picked up uh, and then he continued. So. Um, so he still gave health readings, but another we had the pleasure of having 2,000 or so life readings that were given. Uh, and TJ was the benefactor of that one life reading that he got. And usually in a life reading, he would tell people about their past lives. He would give them maybe three or four at the most of, of, of past lives that they had um, to help them understand what was going on in the here and now. He promised TJ a second life reading when he turned 13, but Casey died before then. So that also impacted TJ's, uh, the trajectory of his soul going forward because he fully expected to have gotten that that other reading. Have you ever tried it? Tried what? To give somebody a reading the way he did. Put yourself into a trance. No, no, that's not my gift at all. I don't do readings. I don't tell anybody who they were, what they were, what the deal is. I'm a guide for them. You know, I believe all answers lie within and that uh, I don't entrust that information to somebody on the outside. I I help people access that information from their own soul because Mm -hmm. all their past life memories are contained in their soul. It's their birthright to have access to that information. They just need a guide to help them go there. So that's what I do. Hmm. Do you think that the, will ever be or ever have have you met anybody um, that even comes close to doing what he did no no unfortunately there are some people out there one person in particular says he's the reincarnation of casey um i don't believe that's true um i'm saying there are some gifted psychics out there i haven't really met any of them that have come anywhere close to what Edgar Casey was was uh, like, um, if they're out there, they're being very humble and they're not coming forward. Because, um, but no, I don't know anybody like him. It's a shame because we could use that right about now. Yeah. What is the difference between what Edgar Casey did um, compared to somebody like Nostradamus? Well, Nostradamus was making. Predictions, yeah. Predictions about the future, and he did, I don't know how many of them he did, but um, Casey was working individually with people. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't just arbitrarily speaking on an issue. He had, as I mentioned earlier, he had to be asked a question. Um, There's some people at ARE that have studied the world affairs readings that they call them. They've divided the readings into different topic areas. The world affairs readings probably would come closest to what Nostradamus was doing. But again, Casey did that with with somebody that was asking him questions. He was working one-on-one basically with that soul, um, even though that soul may not even have been present. Many times people were asking for, uh, for a reading 
And Casey would want to know, well, where are you going to be at this on this day at this time? And then he would zero in on them and do the reading. They weren't always directly in front of him. Um, so that's how he worked. That was, I think, uh, really different than than what others have done. So, so he was doing remote readings long before it was even coined remote readings. <laughs> um, do people like Nostradamus, Casey, and psychics, do you think they pull all their information from the Akashic Records? Well, I know Casey did, uh, uh, and, or else he would go directly to his source. Um, which is why the language in the readings was sometimes difficult to understand. <laughs> Very difficult. Yeah, yeah. Um, even now, you know, people, we've got scholars who are looking at it, trying to, to figure out the, the, I don't know what that language is even called. It's just like almost like a crazy high English or something like that. I mm -hmm. don't know. But um, yeah, I mean, now, Anybody can go to the Akashic Records. That's not a special talent or gift. Um, I know there are people out there that say they're Akashic readers and you yeah. go to them, but um, but you can actually do it on your own. I mean, that isn't that isn't limited to you know people with special skills or talents. Uh, you can learn to do it yourself. Um, Casey's abilities, even the path that Casey took. I don't know if you've ever read about. The, the different levels that he traveled up through in order to get to this information, they were kind of, it was kind of scary. When I read it, I thought, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go through those, uh, through those levels. I don't know anybody, however, that has done this work that has said that they've had a similar journey, a similar trajectory, which that's, they've seen these gargoyle-like creatures and stuff like that on their mm -hmm. way. But when he would go directly to source, you know, um, that that's something I think I do think everybody can do that. I don't I don't think that uh, but I don't think anybody can do it as well as he did um, or had that that ability to do it. We're not all meant to do that kind of work at that level. This was his special gift. He could started having that come up when he was a child even but um but akashic records is something we can we can all do hmm. you know you go up there it's like i mean i i have a, a meditation that i use for people to go there if they want to um and read it but uh and i i i remember reading i remember years ago i met a um a man who was a channeler and uh, he channeled, uh, uh, he called, he said his name was Dr. Fredericks and he was an Akashic librarian. And so when I was first doing this work, I thought of myself as like Harry Houdini, you know, how when Harry Houdini's mother died, you know, mm -hmm. he was, he went out, he was trying to debunk all of the psychics that were out there. He, he you know, kind of check out the, underneath the table they had these wires and everything to, to make it look like they were getting really all the real information but um i had anyway so dr fredericks was and he was he was phenomenal i've never seen anybody like him before um when he would channel this dr fredericks he he his whole physical self would change and he reminded me of yoda you know he got real go yes yes <laughs> and then i'd say to him dr fred pull my file <clears throat> from 1773 and read it to me 
And when he did, I knew he was the real thing because he, he couldn't have possibly known anything about my life in that time period. And yet he did. So I would tell people, you know, be, be cautious about who you're going to. And just remember that, you know, they're, they're going to give you some supplemental information, which is valuable. I've worked with wonderful psychics over the years. Um, but I still feel like all the information is inside of me. I just need to, to access it. And uh, I do that through the soul writing. And, you know, I'm, I have a circle of, of other past life professionals that I work with. Haven't done it in a long time because I'm pretty much um, tapped out on that one life. But, um, but yeah, I think there's a lot that we could do ourselves. We've been given the tools when mm -hmm. we came into this life. It's like, go check the backpack that you wore when you first came to the earth because there's some, like I call soul writing your 24-7 phone home card, uh -huh. you know. And uh, so, <clears throat> so I just believe there's a lot that we can do ourselves and not be so dependent on what other people tell us because you got to remember when other people are talking to you about doing a reading, they're channeling it through their own consciousness. So, um, and especially if they know you, like I have a wonderful psychic friend, Betty Riley. Oh my gosh. I just adore her, but she won't do a reading for me because we know each other too well. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I think that's very ethical of her, even though I, darn it, I really would like a reading from her. <laughs> so yeah, so I don't, like I said, I don't, I don't do readings. I just guide people to get the information themselves. When people are doing this themselves, how can they tell the difference between real information and what's coming from their imagination? Yeah, I get that question all the time when I'm doing a regression. That's the biggest concern people have. How do I know I'm not making all of this up? And so, you know, then you could get into a whole conversation about what is imagination and where does it come from? Right. You know, where is this information coming from in the first place? Um, where is inspiration coming from? Um, I tell people, I especially ask them at the end of the session, would you have made that story up? Did, did, would you know? Would you, if you had to pick, if you had to make up a past life, would it have been the one that you just told me? They all say no, not one of them after the session itself. Because what that implies is if, if you say you made it up, I say to them, oh, okay. So you sat at home, you made up a story, you took the time to make up a story. You got in, this is when I was doing them in person. I don't do them in person anymore. I do them on Zoom now. But when I was doing them in person, I was like, so you got in your car, you drove 45 minutes, an hour or whatever to come to my office. You walk into an office in which you don't know me. You don't know your surroundings. You sit there and for three hours, two or three hours, you're telling me this story. You're crying in it. You're laughing in it. You're, you're uh, experiencing some sort of physical response to it. And after it's all over, you write me a check and say, thank you for listening to me. I said, do you think really you would do that? Would you pay me to listen to a story that you made up? And of course they say no, but that's that's the bottom line with it. You know, it, it's, um, I tell people when they're doing this, I said, go with your first impression, whatever pops into your mind, say it out loud. Don't stop and think about it. 
don't stop and think, where is this coming from? Or I don't want to tell Joanne that. You know, I have no judgment. I really don't. And so I've heard it all over 34 years, you can imagine. So um, nobody, and I'm being honest about this, not a single client that I've had over all these years has ever said to me, yeah, I made that up. <laughs> Interesting. Um so what are you working on now? Are you going writing another book or just focusing you know, that's on funny. that's funny you would ask because I've been thinking about I have I have so many books that are circling me. I, I say it's like planes at O'Hare Airport. They're just circling, trying to come in for a landing. Um I started writing a book called Why Are There So Many Cleopatras? And it mm -hmm. was a book about all the top questions that people ask about reincarnation. So every question you've asked me, almost every question you've asked me today is probably in that. I've made a list of about 35 <laughs> questions and I'm addressing them. And the way I'm doing it is I'm pulling in information from all these other different mm -hmm. professionals. So there'd be a chapter on what's the difference between a soulmate and a twin, twin soul, you know, something like that. Uh, I started doing that and then I stopped because it was really a lot of research and a lot of work. Then I thought, Maybe I need to do something fun. So then I started working on a book about the Beatles and spirituality because I, I'll reveal my, my uh, ancientness here. I was president of a Beatles fan club when they were <laughs> the height of their, you know, and I kept all my newsletters for like eight years of newsletters that I have. Uh, and I wanted to see if they, if somehow there's any evidence that they planted a seed of spirituality in my generation that didn't bloom until 30 years later or whatever. So people that are doing esoteric work who are around mm -hmm. my age, is that where this really came from? Because, oh, you know, we were like little sponges. They so gave us from us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, so there's a lot there. So I started working on that. And then I thought, well, maybe I'll write a book about soulmates. I was going to write a book called Soulmates or Cellmates. <laughs> so, uh, and I've got a lot of clients who have had soulmate issues. And I thought, well, maybe we could kind of look at that. You know, is it heaven or is it hell to, to find this, uh, this, this person? So, um, so in answer to your question, I've got a lot that's kind of floating around. And I, I haven't decided where I'm going to put all my energy right now. So one of those. <laughs> that's cool. Well, um so before we wrap this up, where can my listeners find you? Well, I've got a website. It's joannedimaggio.com. It's J-O-A-N-N-E-D-I-M-A-G-G-I-O.com. Uh, you can um, read about the different kinds of regressions I do. I offer four different kinds. You, if, you, if you're interested in pursuing one, you can book it right online. Uh, I also have a blog. I have some case histories that you might find interesting on there. So uh, upcoming uh, speaking engagements that I'm doing. So there's uh, a lot of, there's even a fun little quiz you can take about which regression is right for you. So, mm -hmm. And all my books are listed there as well. Cool. I will post a link to your website and I will also post a link to your books on Amazon. And you know, it's just episodes so my listeners can check you out while they're listening. Great. I appreciate that. And thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. It's been my pleasure. I've had a lot of fun doing that, and I, I, uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. 
All right, hang on one second. I just got to play the outro. Okay. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy T-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you love what you listen to, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe.